There's a passage in the book of Luke that at minimum should give us all pause. And at maximum, it might just blow us right out of our seats. It is one of the many uncomfortable teachings of Jesus where the implications of what Jesus says are far-reaching and without question intimidate and scare us to a degree. Now, there are many passages that are like this in the teachings of Jesus, but this one falls into a category of things we especially like to rationalize our way out of. You know what I'm talking about. Jesus is accomplished at painting us into a corner with the things that he says, confronting us with the things that he knows we need to change in our lives as we try to come up with every solution to not change that thing. So from Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 23. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have, treasury, you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, can we all admit that would have been better for that young man and better for us if the guy had never asked this question. Why couldn't he have leaved, left this one on, on the floor? And I would prefer, again, not to know Jesus' thoughts about this particular subject, but I do know his thoughts because he talks about his thoughts more than once. And here is the breakdown. The young man approached Jesus looking for confirmation that he was doing the right things to inherit eternal life. This is not a bad question in and of itself. He had kept the commandments since he was a boy. He knows he has kept the commandments since he was a boy. He wants Jesus to give him a fist bump and tell him that it's all good and he shall have eternal life. Now, to be fair to this young man, as far as he knows, he has done everything to inherit eternal life. And we don't know what his motivations are when he comes to Jesus to ask these questions. So Jesus confirmed that he was doing all of the right things, but there was how many things he lacked? One. Don't ask Jesus what you should do if you don't want him to pick the one thing in your life, sell everything and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. There was a reason why the young man lacked this one thing, why he hadn't taken this step. Number one, his culture and religious, uh, the religious people around him wouldn't have told him to do this. So from the time he was a boy, he never grew up hearing this information that he had to sell everything he had and give it up and follow Jesus. 
Therefore, he was a religious man of influence who could not only buy whatever he wanted, but he could also ensure that things went the way he wanted in the world around him. And this is an important connection that we need to make about this young man, that wealth often brings worldly power with it. He is a rich, young ruler. In this passage, he's not to, you know, described as young, but in the other passages, he is. <clears throat> So in this moment when Jesus says these things, he has to ask himself what would he be without his wealth, his influence, and the life that he had spent all this time creating for himself. And ultimately, he was left with the question, am I willing to give up everything? Am I willing to give up it all in order to follow this man, Jesus? Now, here's where we sometimes make a disconnect with this story. A lot of times, as we read through this stuff, we don't view, especially these unnamed side characters, we don't view them as real people. In fact, I think sometimes we fall into the trap of almost thinking that he is only included to make this point. That, that that's why he's there, is so that this point can be made. But there is something really true about him and about the situation that he found himself in. This is what happens when the kingdom of God comes up against the kingdoms we have created. When the kingdom of the world and all that it has to offer sits right in front of us. Something within that relationship, within that, that, the closeness to one another, something has to give. Because it's not without reason that Jesus declared in Matthew chapter 6, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money, God and wealth, God and power. And how many times throughout the Bible story have we seen wealth and power corrupt those who have? who have it. It happens over and over and over and over again. Well, Bryce, aren't we talking about Joseph? Yes, we are. I just wanted to make you uncomfortable from the start. <clears throat> and we covered several big events in our time together last week. Joseph revealed himself to his brothers. He acknowledged uh, for the first time that God had been behind everything all along. He sent his brothers back to bring Jacob, his father, to Egypt, and Jacob agreed to go. And in the middle of all of this action, it might be easy to overlook that God spoke to Jacob while he was on his way. Now, why do I bring this up again? On one hand, it's not an unusual thing. God had spoken to Jacob in this sort of way at least two other times that we're aware of. But on the other hand, throughout the story of Joseph, we have not seen Joseph and God interact in the way that we see Jacob and God interact on the way to Egypt. And while the whole story to this point has been about Joseph, Joseph had the dreams, Joseph went to Egypt and rose to the ranks, Joseph was without question blessed by God. 
You understand that, that God was with him, and that made him successful in everything that he did. In this moment, however, the story takes a turn that is developed even more in the passages that we are going to look at this week. And the story in that moment turns from Joseph back to Jacob. And we might have expected God to have moved on from Jacob at this point, because after all, within the Joseph story, what has Jacob been other than a pathetic old man wishing his life were something different than it is? That's all he's been to this point. But instead, in the middle of this, he was affirmed by God from chapter 46, verses 3 through 4. God says to him, I am the God, the God of your father, he said. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Now, we can't forget, because we've gotten away from this a little bit, that this entire family is established upon the promises of God. And Jacob was confirmed as the carrier of God's promises, the promises that were made to Abraham and then to Isaac and then to him. But there is something else that we need to note. Jacob was living in the land of Canaan while Joseph was in Egypt. And the land of Canaan was the land that God had promised to them. And while he wanted to go see Joseph in Egypt, Egypt was not the promised land. And so Jacob has this moral dilemma. We don't know that he has it until God addresses it. He has this moral dilemma of, if I leave Canaan to go to Egypt, am I betraying the promise that God gave to me? So God says to him, it's okay to go. It's okay to go. Just because you're going now, it doesn't mean that you are going to be there forever. In fact, I promise you, I will bring you back. And that Jacob himself, or Joseph himself, will close your eyes. So this shows us something that's been lacking in the story so far. Jacob was still very much a child of the promise, meaning that he knew without question and without doubt that his future was in the hands of God. And therefore, his future was not in the hands of a king from a wealthy nation. Now, that's important, uh, distinguished... <laughs> Sorry, I'm, a lot of things are happening with me today. <laughs> can't wear my glasses because they're hurting my head. I keep feeling like I have to yawn for some reason. <laughs> it's, a weird, it's a weird morning. He knew his future was with God, but and, and because of that, he, he knew that his future was not with the Pharaoh. But the one thing we don't know, and it's weird, we probably never thought about this way, is we don't know where Joseph stands on all of this. I'm not sure his family knows where he stands in all of this. And yes, he just made this declaration that God has given him all these things. But there's an important question that is out in front of Joseph. Is he a child of the promise? 
or is he a child of power? And can he have it both ways? So let's pick it up at the end of chapter 46 as we look at this and chapter 47. Verses 31 through 34. Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and speak to Pharaoh and will say to him, My brothers and my father's household who were living in the land of Canaan have come to me. The men are shepherds, they tend livestock, and they have brought along their flocks and herds and everything they own. When Pharaoh calls you in and asks, What is your occupation? You should answer, Your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on just as our fathers did. Then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. Okay. This is a bit of a weird, interesting moment, given all that we know about Joseph, all that we know about Pharaoh, about their relationship, and about Pharaoh's general attitude toward Joseph and his family. Joseph had promised his brothers that he would take care of everything for them while they were in Egypt. And there is no reason for us to think that Joseph cannot deliver on the things he promised. But then Pharaoh doubled down on what Joseph said, offering the best that that Egypt had to offer. In fact, he told them, Don't bring stuff back with you because it's going to pale in comparison to what I have for you. Everything was set. The family was set. So why does Joseph tell his brothers to not be forthcoming with Pharaoh about what they do for a living? The only reasonable answer, if we're just going to sort of guess here, we can, the only reasonable answer we can come to is that Joseph was afraid that Pharaoh, upon finding out that these guys were shepherds, that he would change his mind because Egyptians don't like shepherds. But in the grand scheme of everything that has happened and all of the movements that have taken place, and his reuniting with his family, and they're moving to Egypt. Doesn't this seem like a trivial thing to focus on at this moment? And hasn't Joseph lived his life with character? Being someone who does the right thing and says the right thing and who acts in all the ways that he should. Why is he now telling his brothers to be dishonest by means of omission? Perhaps this was a a way for Joseph to play things both ways, to put Egypt first, but also to put his family first. I don't know, but it, it does tell us at this point in the story that Joseph is operating on a different level than his family. Because you need to wrap your minds around this, as much as we know this, Joseph has all he could ever need. There is not a single need or desire or 
want of Joseph's that is not met by the kingdom of Egypt. He has it all. So what happens next after he tells his brother to not tell him these things, and this is the way for you to get the best part of the land? What happens next is a contrast that we need to see because we would have never seen this coming. From chapter 47, verses 1 through 6. Joseph went and told Pharaoh, My father and brothers with their flocks and herds and everything they own have come from the land of Canaan and are now in Goshen. He chose five of his brothers and presented them before Pharaoh. Pharaoh asked the brothers, What is your occupation? Your servants are shepherds, they replied to Pharaoh, just as our fathers were. They also said to him, We have come to live here for a while because the famine is severe in Canaan and your servants' flocks have no pasture. So now, please let your servants settle in Goshen. Pharaoh then turns to Joseph and said, Your father and your brothers have come to you and the land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best part of the land. Let them live in Goshen, and if you know of any among them with special ability, put them in charge of my own livestock. Okay, there are a couple things that should jump out to you. And first things first, the brothers did not take Joseph's advice. These poor guys who have been pulled every which direction since Joseph came back into their lives. They decided that they would be totally honest with Pharaoh. What do you do? Oh, we're shepherds. When Joseph had just told them not to say that. Now they decide to be people of character. And as we have noted, we can't overlook how the last several years have changed these men and their perspective on life. So against Joseph's will, they told Pharaoh, yes, we are shepherds. And Pharaoh did not even blink. Not only did he give them the best part of the land for their flocks and families, which was Goshen, he also offered to put some of them in charge of his own livestock, as if Pharaoh was looking for some new shepherds. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting how that happened? And the family could not have asked for anything more than what they were given and how they were treated. Now, we need to step outside the story for a moment and ask ourselves, why is this move so important? This move to Goshen, which is a fertile land where there are their animals can feed, where they can grow things. Why is this so important? Well, it's important for this reason. What's happening back in Canaan? Famine, right? It's not a great time. There's not food for their animals, let alone food for them. If they stayed in Canaan, what would happen to them? <laughs> As Megan said, or displayed, I guess, that's not really saying anything. They would die if they stayed there. But by going to Egypt, they have more resources, protection, and placement than they have ever had in their entire lives. In fact, they have the ear of the king himself, willing to offer even his own 
property for their care. And therefore, while the rest of the world suffers through famine, they will have more than enough. More than enough. Now, why is this necessary? Well, I need to remind you that in a few short chapters, we were, we'd be in the book of Exodus. And from this group of 70 to the beginning of the, the book of Exodus, they grow to hundreds of thousands of people. Does Goshen matter? Yeah, it kind of does. It kind of does. This place where they can develop for a period of time. However, the brothers, not only are they honest, but they make sure that Pharaoh knows, look, we are only going to be here as long as we need to. Because this place is not our home. We have a home back in Canaan. It's not the best place to live right now, but we are going to return there. So now, Jacob, we know, is a child of the promise, and God has confirmed that in him. And and, and now we know also that his brothers consider themselves to be child of the promise, that they know their future is not in Egypt. Their future is back in the land of Canaan. So let's pick it up in verses 7 through 12. (laughs) <laughs> this is a good one. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob in and presented him before Pharaoh. After Jacob blessed Pharaoh, Pharaoh asked him, How old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage are a hundred and thirty. My years have been few and difficult, and they do not equal the years of the pilgrimage of my fathers. Then Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers in Egypt and gave them property in the best part of the land, the district of Ramesses, as Pharaoh directed. Joseph also provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to the number of their children. Okay, it's a pretty good outcome, right, for them. But let's take a look at this conversation because this conversation is hilarious. You just don't know it yet. There are two people that are essential to this conversation. They are whom? Jacob and Pharaoh. Okay. Who is Jacob? He's Joseph's dad. Exactly. And he's the head of, uh, we consider 70 to be big, but this is his, his group of people, and it's relatively small compared to the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh commands that whole area, and keep in mind, has enough wealth and wherewithal in putting Joseph in charge that he's basically king of the world at this moment, of the known world in that area. So what happens when these two get together? Jacob walks up to Pharaoh, and what does he do? He blesses him. That's a little bit of a weird move for this old man, father of this group of people, to walk up to the most powerful man and bless him as if Jacob has something more than Pharaoh has. And what's really funny is that Pharaoh tries to make small talk. 
So he takes this blessing. Let's just say he takes it on the forehead just for fun. He takes this blessing. Then he's like, cool. So how old are you? (laughs) Jacob is having another conversation entirely than the one that Pharaoh thinks he is having. Jacob seizes this casual question and talks about his very existence. I am a sojourner. I am a wanderer. And I have wandered for a long time. But even that doesn't equal the wanderings of those who came before me. And in this moment, the owner of the greatest piece of land in the world is talking to a man who acknowledges I don't have that. I don't have land. But it doesn't come across as hopeless. Do you, there's, not like, there's not some sort of like complaining, whining, arguing sort of thing to this. He just states it simply. And in this moment, we see so clearly that Pharaoh and Jacob are two very different people. Pharaoh effectively runs a vast nation, and he can do whatever he pleases with it. And Jacob admits, ultimately, that he is a man with no permanent home. And it's easy for us to get that Jacob has no concept, i.e., he cannot even imagine the kind of life that Joseph has been living. There is nothing for him to compare it to. Some of what he is seeing in Egypt in terms of structure and power and wealth, he is seeing for the first time. He is a very different person than Pharaoh. And yet, the power imbalance between Pharaoh and him, Jacob takes control of it as if He is the one being gracious to Pharaoh instead of Pharaoh being gracious to him. And keep in mind that Pharaoh has just offered them Goshen. So in saying, we are sojourners, we are travelers, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, and you have provided a home for us. No, he doesn't let Pharaoh put a bow on that. Because Jacob knows that ultimately, where is his home? It's Canaan. There's no response given to us by Pharaoh, but, you know, Jacob's feeling estrasasi, so he blesses Pharaoh again, just for good measure. So Jacob, as much of a sad sack he's been through the story, we see that he's... He's more than we have given him credit for being. Perhaps even through his own story. Because in the midst of all this worldly power being laid out in front of him, Jacob reminded the most powerful man in the world that Jacob's future did not lie in his hands. Jacob knows the difference between what God promises and what the world says it can give you. And he, for one, is not going to accept what Pharaoh is offering him in exchange for what God says is out in front of him. He won't do it. He's a child of promise, not of earthly power. Therefore, God is behind this basic pit stop 
in Egypt. And furthermore, Egypt is being used to further the promise that God himself has made to his people. Is Pharaoh being gracious? Sure he is. But he's not the one doing this. They've been brought here so that God can fulfill his promises to them. And this is how Jacob and Jacob's brothers understand the situation. Okay, so what about Joseph? Where is his head? Let's look at verses 13 through 26. It's a long one here, but stick with me. There was no food, however, in the whole region because the famine was severe. Both Egypt and Canaan wasted away because of the famine. Joseph collected all the money that was to be found in Egypt and Canaan in payment for the grain they were buying, and he brought it to Pharaoh's palace. When the money of the people of Egypt and Canaan was gone, all Egypt came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? Our money is all gone. Then bring your livestock, said Joseph. I will sell you food in exchange for your livestock since your money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and he gave them food in exchange for their horses, their sheep and goats, their cattle and donkeys. And he brought them through that year with food in exchange for all their livestock. When that year was over, they came to him the following year and said, We cannot hide from our Lord the fact that since our money is gone and our livestock belongs to you, there is nothing left for our Lord except our bodies and our land. Why should we perish before your eyes? We in our land as well. By us in our land in exchange for food, and we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Give us seeds so that we may live and not die, and that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's, and Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received a regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. That is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, Now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so you can plant the ground. But when the crops come in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four-fifths you may keep as seeds for the fields and as food for yourselves and your households and your children. You have saved our lives, they said. May we find favor in the eyes of our Lord. We'll be in bondage to Pharaoh. So Joseph established it as a law concerning land in Egypt, still in force today, that a fifth of the produce belongs to Pharaoh. It was only the land of the priests that did not become Pharaoh's. Okay. Thoughts on this particular happening. There are a few things that I want to point out to you just as sort of surface things. They refer to their Lord multiple times. Who are they talking about? They're talking about Joseph. Joseph has decisions to make throughout this story as they come and appeal to him. And every time he makes a decision, who is the decision for? It's for Pharaoh in Egypt. Do we see very much graciousness 
in the moves of Joseph. Well, so maybe he's doing what he needs to. Maybe. We also, though, see so clearly that Joseph has these people over a barrel. And they come to him thinking, if we don't give you all we have, you will let us die. I mean, that's their mind. That's where their minds are. Do we love what Joseph does here? Now, I I don't. I don't love what he does here. Uh, Do we know what his state of mind was? No, we don't. Do we know if this is what God told him to do? No, we don't. We don't have any of those answers. But isn't this part of the story, doesn't this contrast pretty dramatically what we just saw in Jacob and some of Joseph's brothers? We can say conclusively that Joseph acts to the benefit of the empire. And the, emph- the emphasis throughout this section is Joseph's commitment to getting as much as he can to Pharaoh. There is nowhere stated a commitment to feeding the people. It's just, it's just not in this telling of the story. And in the process of this, he acquires everything. He acquires everything. And the thing that really gets me is that not only does he acquire everything, but he asks for what they're going to have in the future as well. 20% comes back. And they're all happy. Why? Because they get to live. Joseph is deemed that they get to live through the paying of all these things. So not only did Egypt survive the famine, which is a good thing, but the landscape was forever changed because if, if Pharaoh was powerful before, nothing compared to what happens through the famine. And Joseph is not the bystander, he's the architect. Why is this so hard for me to swallow? Because it makes me wonder if Joseph is a child of promise or if he's a child of power. And it's clear that Jacob is a child of promise, but at this point in the story, although Joseph has said, God brought me this way to do what? To save lives. He's not necessarily acting like someone whose main priority here is to save lives. Joseph, in fact, is kingdom-building right where he is and using the disaster to make it happen. There's another layer to this we'll hit in just a second. But what this shows to us is that kingdom and empire in this place brings danger with it. It is difficult to serve the promise and serve power, wealth, influence, money. 
And we are reminded that kingdom and empire here is never far from exploitation, oppression, and slavery. It is never far from that place. They have to sell their future when they already have nothing left to give. And food is used as the main tool of oppression, which is hard to swallow. Now, just to put one more spoon of sugar on top of this Sunday, what do we know is coming for the nation of Israel? Slavery, oppression, removal of all of their rights. It's hard (laughs) to wrap our minds around all that has happened. That this is coming, and we know this is coming, but this is how Joseph acts. So whether or not you walk away from here thinking, well, man, I was totally wrong about Joseph, or no, Joseph had to be doing this for good reasons, you can, that's fine. Either, either way you come to it, this. But we have to address, on some level, the difficulty of what we're seeing in this story. Let's end it here in uh, 47 verses 27 through 31. Now the Israelites settled in Egypt in the region of Goshen. They acquired property there and were fruitful and increased greatly in number. Jacob lived in Egypt 17 years, and the years of his life were 147. When the time drew near for Israel to die, he called for his son Joseph and said to him, If I have found favor in your eyes, put your hand under my thigh and promise that you will show me kindness and faithfulness. Do not bury me in Egypt. But when I rest with my fathers, carry me out of Egypt and bury me where they are buried. I will do as you say, he said. Swear to me, he said. Then Joseph swore to him, and Israel worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. The bookends to this episode in Joseph's life give stark contrast Because even in Jacob's death, what is he most concerned about? The promise, I need to get back home. And he asks Joseph, and Joseph says yes. And then what does he say? Swear to me. Why? Maybe he doesn't trust him, but I mean, Joseph is Egyptian at this point. I mean, he's lived there for longer than he lived anywhere else. And he could probably arrange a pretty significant burial for Jacob in the land of Egypt. But Jacob will not let him do that. He makes him swear that he will take him back because Goshen is not his home. And he will not be laid to rest in the place that is not the place that God promised to him. He wants to, in his death, be back with his fathers and be, in his death, a child of the promise. Okay, so where do we go with all of this? I think you see where we're going with all of this. I would hope so. I've laid it on pretty thick. You cannot be a child of the promise and be a child of earthly power. The two don't don't mix. 
And the reason why they don't mix is because the latter pulls you away from the former. Power, influence, wealth pulls you away from being a child of promise. As Jesus stood in front of the rich young ruler in Luke chapter 18, he declared, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And again, from Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Now, why is this the case? It's pretty simple. God promises a his people, a kingdom of the future. What he will make them, what they will become. Wealth and power encourage us to build a kingdom now, in this place where we are. And what do we know about us as people? We get so focused on kingdom building here that the promise of what is to come can't help but fall behind. And listen, we come by it honestly, particularly in this country. We are told every day, all day, that where we live and what kind of house we're in and what we drive and what kind of clothes we wear and how much money we have for retirement, and whether we can buy a vineyard when we retire, or do all the things we've always wanted to do in our life. It is all kingdom building, but it's not building the kingdom of God. It is all kingdom building, but it is not building the kingdom of God. Power and wealth plant our feet firmly in this place, telling us that we can live our best lives now. It encourages us to keep our mind, our eyes down, instead of looking up to the promise that God gives us. And friends, when we can control our kingdom here, why would we even want a kingdom that is in the hands of God and not in our own? Wealth and power change our priorities. They, they want us to, they, they act in their own interests at all times, wanting to preserve and protect themselves. So, we too are children of the promise. And in the story that we read through today, we see the difficulty, the challenge of being a child of promise, living in a kingdom-building world maybe more directly than we have ever seen in any other passage of the Bible. And the one thing that we need to remember is that if we are going to be children of the promise, we need to hold on to that promise with both hands and all our toes. Right? We do. We have to claim that as our identity, as who we are. Because the kingdom of here is going to do everything it can 
to pry your toes first because they're weaker in general to pry you away from being a child of the promise and i'll tell you sometimes it's hard to understand it really is sometimes it's hard to implement or practice but especially now through jesus the life that god promises us is so much greater is so much greater than whatever temporary kingdom we could build here now. And it's challenging to us because if we are going to live that life, then it means we don't necessarily live a life of power and wealth and influence and kingdom here. I mean, Jesus was a homeless guy. There's a lot for us to think about. Yeah. And maybe in this moment as we take communion together, maybe a good point of identification for us is that God loves us when we are spiritually, emotionally, mentally sometimes bankrupt. When we are poor. When we are run down. And I am so grateful that God did not choose to build a kingdom of power here on earth. I'm grateful for that. Because God's kingdom looks entirely different than what we would build here. God's kingdom is built on love, the sacrifice of his son, forgiveness, and grace. And it is on that foundation that we stand. Amen.